late this morning. I woke up uh, Wednesday morning early, um, not by choice, but by the time my alarm went off. And uh, I was thinking about just going through my normal prayer time, and as I was praying for a friend of mine who's preaching his last sermon in 37 years this morning, and uh, he's, he's just grieving through a lot of it. Um, <clears throat> it wasn't necessarily his decision that he, he was hoping he would be able to continue in the pulpit a little longer. And this thought came to me, living in the land of Nod, and I thought, that's interesting. You know, over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at um, some key words out of the Scripture. A couple, two, three weeks back, we looked at the idea that uh, what God made, He called good. And good is a house that is filled with abundance. And so what God makes is good. And that, that is, in essence, is the heart of the gospel, that God is about restoring us to what is good. And he is indeed good. And so then the following week, we looked at the idea that uh, the, the very next thing that God does is rest, that he creates the very concept of rest that's integral to created order and integral to who we are. That's why Jesus said, come to me, and you will find what you can't find by yourself, rest for your souls. And then last week, we kind of explored the idea, just thinking deeply about the idea that what God called very good is his image bearers, mankind, and that he actually takes on a human suit, uh, not just as a, you know obligation, but what he loves and what he, in what he created, and that he comes to inhabit us and that, that profound exchange. So uh, this week, uh, again, that thought came to me. I was like, oh, I wonder. And again, it didn't immediately come to my brain what it was. But I looked it up a little bit later. That, that um, the, let, let me give a little background to this. And that is that you got Genesis 1 and 2, a creator where there's good, there's rest, that mankind that God calls very good. And then in chapter 3, we have the fall of man, and then immediately in chapter 4, when man is driven from the garden, he goes east of Eden, and Adam's son, Cain, settles in the land of Nod, N-O-D, which means wanderer. And in other places, it, it could be translated as a fugitive wandering. And so, isn't that descriptive of man apart from the garden? Aimless fugitives, and the gospel is about the God who comes and restores man to Eden. There it is, beloved. It's, that's a picture that we must keep in our hearts. The gospel is about God restoring man to what is good, not just repairing his brokenness. Okay? So, in Genesis 28, this is out of the lectionary for this week, we come across a wanderer. See, and and from Genesis 3 forward, this is where man is. He's wandering. And so we find another wanderer. His name is Jacob. Uh, Many generations later, between a rock and a hard place. 
Okay, Genesis 28, verse 10. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place. Notice that it's not named. And spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head. That's a hard pillow. Okay? And he laid down in that place. He had a dream. And behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac, uh, the land in which you lie, I will give to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will be spread out to the west and the east and the north and the south. And to you and your descendants shall be all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you. Behold, I am with you. Take note of that. And will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I didn't know it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God and the gate of heaven. And it goes on to say that he takes that stone and some others and he names the place Bethel, meaning the house of God. Title the message of this morning, Stone Pillows in the Land of Nod. Stone pillows um, are difficult. I wonder if you've ever had to settle for a stone pillow. What I'm talking about, you see, Jacob is wandering. He's just gone through an exchange with his brother that didn't go well and that he didn't really participate in well. And he's wandering away from home. He goes to a place that is nameless, alone, away, apart, all of those words that you want to use. And there he comes, and he's so exhausted that he uses a stone as a pillow. And it's really a picture of where he was at. Have you ever been so exhausted from the press of life that's left you beyond, you know, uh, to the point that you, you, you're even unaware of emotional and your physical surroundings because nothing seems like home. Nothing is right. Now, understand what I'm saying. We can be at our physical address and still be in this place. You know what I'm saying, right? Um, when I was writing this message, the story that came to my mind was a July afternoon, probably because it's in the month of July, but... We were attempting to transition from one home to another. Um, we had just moved uh, out of the city. We lived in the country for a little bit, and then we were going to move into a big old farm. That was the plan. 
South Central Colorado. It was going to be great. And uh, at this point, I've got two or three of my siblings that are married and left the home. But, man, I was excited. I'm a 12-year-old boy that's thinking life is going to be great and it's going to be good. It's going to be unlike anything I've ever dreamed of. And so in the transition time, my oldest brother and his wife went to Canada because that's where she was from. And we were living in their house because there's some kind of transition between the house that we'd lived in and where we were moving to. So we were just hanging out in their house for a minute. And then something happened. And we weren't really made aware, I wasn't, that, that mom needed to go to the hospital and have a surgery. And my older sister seemed to be pretty upset about it, but my dad seemed to think everything was going to be fine. That afternoon we sat down, and if again, if my memory is right, <clears throat> we're eating stew. Who eats stew in July? I don't know. We did. And so we're sitting down to eat, and my dad began to explain a little bit more about the surgery that my mother just had. And my father, again, I, I want to give him grace for all the stuff he'd been through in his life, but he didn't deliver this very well. As we're trying to eat, and he's taking a bite, all of a sudden he just spills everything out. Your mom has breast cancer. She had a double mastectomy. They've given her a year, maybe a year and a half to live. And this is when I'm attempting to try to chew food. And it got deathly quiet. My sisters begin to weep. I had nothing to say. I, I, the only thing I, I can remember trying to choke down another, you know, bite. And then somewhere after dinner, I don't, I, I think... I helped with dishes or something. I, somewhere after dinner, I told my sister, or she might have suggested to me, I don't know, my sister Monica and I, we went to take a walk. Because the only thing that seemed good at that point was to wander off somewhere. And I don't even remember that we said a whole lot to each other. We just wandered. Because what we knew... And what was clear was what was happening was not good. God creates man in a garden that he calls good, and he calls man very good. And he literally places, uh, you, you know, when he describes life apart from that place, this is what I want you to notice. In Genesis 4, east of Eden, it's the wandering place, the land of Nod. I have had many times in my life, and I have no doubt that all of us have had these times in our life that have felt like the land of Nod, that I'm somewhere I never dreamed I'd be. I feel alone. No one's here. It feels inconsolable. There's confusion. Here's the tragic story that secularism, and I want to add to this, religion, 
has taught many of us. Not only are you alone, but God isn't there. That's where Jacob was in the land of Nod, wandering in a nameless place that he's sure has nothing to do with any kind of inheritance. I'm just, I'm running for my life. And yet in our text, he awakens from a dream where he'd had his head on a stone pillow with this proclamation, this is none other than the house of God. And the gate of heaven, which is to reveal that Jacob went to sleep in the land of Nod and he encounters the house of God. He goes to sleep confident that he's in the land of wandering and he awakens and ensure that God isn't there and he awakens to proclaim the house of God, the gate of heaven. It isn't the land of Nod. The God who is good has met me here and I didn't know it. Man may have moved east of Eden and become fugitive wanderers, but that did not stop God's ability to meet mankind. C.S. Lewis said it this way, we may ignore, but we can nowhere evade the presence of God. The world is crowded with him. He walks everywhere incognito, and the incognito is not always hard to penetrate. The real labor is to remember, to attend, to in fact come awake, still more to remain awake. The good news that we are proclaiming from our text today is simple but true. Stone pillows are real, but the gospel proclaims Bethel. The gospel proclaims that God's presence is not something that we attain or achieve, but a reality that has been restored to man in Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel is that he is God with us. He is the one who proclaimed to Jacob, I'm with you, and I will fulfill my promise. The story that secularism, religious secularism has told us is God isn't there. The worst part of my 12-year-old story, smack dab in the middle of our charismatic renewal movement. And so what did we do? We went to meeting after meeting trying to figure out how to get God into our story. Because surely he can't be telling his story and where you are. Do you guys understand what I'm talking about? And so there's all kinds of condemnation, shame, all kinds of hellish messages, and that's where they come from, right? And see, the thing is, I, I'm sharing that because I believe all of us have had these moments. The story that Jesus comes to confront is that God has not left you on your own. The story that Jesus comes to inhabit and announce forever is that he's restored man unto man is this, that God is with us. 
that he's for us. John 5, 17, my father is at work to this very day, and I am working as well. God is present and at work, even in the land of Nod. Seems like a basic reality, a basic truth. We've taught this before. I've taught portions of this sermon before. But my point is, we often live unaware, especially when our bodies are overcome by fear, by discouragement, by insecurity. You know, something that my wife has been inviting me to is that when I'm having that day, which I think I had part of that day yesterday, by the way, on my birthday, and that is one of the things that we need to do is to actually acknowledge this is what, I, this is what my body feels like discouraged today and just go ahead and reveal the draft right the crappy draft (laughs) this is what I'm thinking I know it's not true but it's actually what's going on inside of me that was a phone call we had yesterday am I enough do I matter you know, it's interesting, one of the most powerful apostolic prayers of the New Testament, Ephesians 1, 15 to 21, I won't quote it all, but Paul's praying, oh, that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened in order that you might know the hope to which he has called you. His incomparable power for us who believe, the divine riches of his inheritance in the saints. But see, the, the power of that prayer is not to perceive a new reality but to perceive what is actually reality. And our invitation this morning, I believe, is to the the very same, in that we, we would embrace what is real. Stone pillows, they're hard, they're difficult, and I mean even add this, sometimes they're even impossible to discern. Some things I can't give an answer to. I don't know. But what I am living surrendered and becoming more and more convinced of, they do not limit the presence of God. You know, it's interesting. The psalmist says this in Psalm 103. I think I've shared this before, but often when I'm having one of those days, I identify with that proclamation, bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is in me. Bless his holy name and forget not. His benefits. Jesus' final words to his friends, John 14, Matthew 18, John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Matthew 18, 20, I am with you always to the end of the age. The word with communicates two ideas. One is the idea of transformation, and the other one is presence. So get this. Jesus proclaims a forever change. I'm going to be with you. You're not alone. He comes to dwell in a human body, but now Christ is in us by his spirit, in his church, in you and in me. Now, I preach that stuff for years, and then I go to prayer meetings, and I hear people praying. I hear myself praying. And we sound a little more convinced of something else. 
the language of our prayer. I've showed up in one men's prayer meeting where I would hear the opening line almost every time, God, show up. So where is he now? What about the songs that we listen to? I mean, some of them are, you know, I appreciate people being honest about their feelings. But, but here's the thing. Feelings, I'm not saying don't acknowledge them. They're real, but they're not very good leaders. They're good windows to the soul, but they, they can't really discern what's actually true. And so that's why, you know, my wife's saying to me, okay, let's get through the first draft here. Here we go. And, and what we face in what I'm calling religious secularism that has convinced us of th- some things deep in our bones is that God isn't here. You know, my wife and I have been trying to express this often, w- how often we grew up with the idea that you, you, if you're a follower of Jesus, you couldn't feel sad, right? That's bad. It's like, no, actually, we, we carry in us and, and Paul even puts this this way. He says, you know, there's even a sense of sorrow and despair and yet joyful at the same time. How do we do that? Well, it's a challenge. What we want to do is say, Lord, I don't want to live unaware of how safe that I am and how close that you are and how treasured I am as your child. Jacob's dream reveals this. Oh, wait a second. That's not a rock. Can you imagine how discouraging that would be? Hustling in the desert. Not even, a, not even a palm tree to lay under, just a rock. And he awakens to say, this is, this is the house of God, the gate of heaven. And I didn't know it. So here's the point uh, to that. Jacob didn't make God show up. He woke up. Oh, wait. Can I say that? Is that too soon for me to say something about woke? (laughs) Okay. I'm sorry. There's so much mess with that. Yes, I want to live awake and woke to the heart of God. Where was God before Jacob went to sleep? Same place. See, my biggest need isn't that God, God, would you show up? My biggest need is that I wake up to the one who said, I am with you to the end of the age. Like he said to Jacob, I'm with you. I will do what I promised. So Paul says this um, in Athens on Mars Hill. It's in him that we live and move and have our very being. So, so wait, if I'm beginning to digest this and I'm thinking about, okay, stone pillows translating into my life when I'm feeling empty and alone and my life is mundane, wait, there isn't such a thing as mundane? Well, it can feel mundane. But my mundane just became as important as the extraordinary. And, and, 
here's where I think we struggle with this, especially when our bodies feel convinced that we're not safe and that we're not cared for or that we're alone and there's nothing but a stone pillow in the land of Nod in a wandering place that we would wake up to say, Bethel, oh God, you are with me right here, right here. Nod, it feels like Nod, God, but you're revealing Tov. So as I continue to surrender to this, and again, I, I begin to verbalize that first draft. Oh, this is what it feels like. But that's part of my repentance unto the fact that you're closer than I could ever imagine. I'm trying to talk God into coming close, but he's present. I'm trying to talk him into being good, but he's always been good. His house has always had a fullness of abundance. I want him to do something. He's always been at work, and he's still at work. My job then, paying attention to what he's doing and surrendering to it. That, beloved, is repentance. And again, I I just want to reiterate this, that I believe one of the biggest challenges for many of us, if we listen to, oh, dare I say it out loud, uh, even sometimes we hear songs that are being sung on Christian radio, not all of that's got really great theology, okay? We've all drank the coffee of religious secularism that, that, that has told us he's out there and away from us. And then here's how this thing starts to get translated into our bodies and into how we live when we begin to believe that kind of stuff, we begin to, to, to and, and we're not recognizing, oh, Lord, my greatest need is that I awaken to the truth of who you are and your presence with me. Then I begin to believe the lie that the greatest barrier to God being near me are those people who are doing bad things. And, and I begin to resist them when Jesus said, Love them and embrace them. You guys, are you following what I'm trying to get at right now? See, it, it, it begins to manifest in literally how we posture our life towards others and how we think about the world around us. Our invitation, Christ, you're here. Christ in me, the hope of glory, the power of God is in me. So this is where the Christian practices of confession Corporate confession, communion, worship, that's what it's about. I want to give myself to what's true. Now, for me, uh, uh, the personal prayer and what I've called you know, prayer liturgy has been one of the most transformative uh, practices of my life um, and for my heart especially. And I, I'm, I'm now going to say it publicly. All right, here we go. It's going to come out publicly. Um, after this last few days, I told Denise, I said, honey, I think it's time. I, I, I don't like announcing, inviting people into something that I haven't actually been doing. So we've been, I've been doing this for a while. But we're going to, we're, we're going to be sharing uh, some kind of a prayer school that is about inviting others just to learn the practice of praying prayers that anchor our hearts in truth. So we're either going to lead it or become a part of it, and I'll hopefully it'll be sometime here in this, this fall. Because what's happened for me in, in practicing prayer is that my prayer life is no longer about trying to 
get a hold of God, but it's about surrendering to the God who's present. I'm not, so, so here's what the shifts in me. I'm not striving to be like Christ. Oh, yeah, I'm surrendering to Christ in me. Yeah? Okay? I am decreasing my resistance to the measure of his grace. It's not so much about becoming holy. Ooh, that can almost sound bad. But rather that I am surrendering to his holiness. So I can begin to proclaim my life in its mundane, boring, discouraging, frustrating, there's a Christian word for anger, uh, experience. That that can become Bethel? Yes. What it means is that the stone pillows, trauma and pain and hurt, they're real. But God, you could meet me here. This could be the gate of heaven. What if, what if we could stop discarding the ordinary mundane moments of life as secular, what if we could what, what what if what if we could stop seeing our suffering? And there's it's real when we're going through it physically, and our physical bodies aren't working. What if we stop seeing that as the proof of God's absence? And the God who said I'm, I'm here. What if in faith I could proclaim, God, you were here and I didn't know it? Where is he going to meet me? Well, here's some thoughts. Maybe that's exactly where he's going to meet me. In my fears, and that's part of what this has been for my wife and I, that rehearsing of that really bad first draft, just being honest. Because in my fears, he is not afraid. And I can come back and say, wait a minute, this is what's true. In my shame that I feel, he's not ashamed. In my pain, he's not unaware. In my disconnected and discouraged places, he is not condemning. What if we could plant a flag that says, no, he didn't make the mess. His intent was tov, right? Good. Man's been in this wandering place. But he still meets him there. Man, that's good news. What if I could dare to believe that everything can be spiritual? What if I'm not trying to get God in to do something in my life, but he's already doing something? What if I don't need to be in a different place, a better place, an other place to meet him? What if where you are is exactly where God is. And beloved, I think we need to hear this. It, it, we live in a world that is in upheaval. 
And it often feels true that we're wandering fugitives east of Eden, wandering in the land of Nod, but the gospel proclaims God's invaded the land of Nod to reveal Tov, the goodness of God. It's called the kingdom of God. We will encounter stone pillows that feel very convincing, that want us to believe that we're nothing more than wandering fugitives, but true gospeling is learning to surrender to the mystery. God, even here, you reveal your goodness. You came to wandering fugitives, and you restored them to relationship and representation. That's the gospel I confess. So listen to this. I want to say this clearly. There was a time in my Bible school years, I sat down, I began to study, you know, like the the, the maps of the Middle East and like, you know, there's places in the book of Genesis. I'm like, where is Eden? Maybe I'm the only guy that did that, but I like maps. Can I say this to us? Eden is not a pin in the map. Eden is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So that when I'm staring at a stone pillow, I can proclaim, oh, how awesome is this place that is none other than the house of God and the gate of heaven. That I can unlearn, unlearn, unlearn the heresy of religious secularism and live a supernatural life of union with God present where I am. What if we could begin to learn how cared for and safe and treasured we are and begin to share that with them? My neighbor, that God is always present and that he's always at work. I want to close this morning with a couple of things. First is a a little bit longer passage out of the book of Acts in 17, out of the message. And so I want to invite us to, to just read it together. And that's going to bring us to communion, to our place of common confession together. And uh, I, w- I want to pray just a simple prayer before that. And then I want to close us in a prayer this morning from the common book of prayer from a couple of weeks ago. But it is just a simple and a powerful prayer. But, Lord, as we come to this, your table, we proclaim your life and your death. But, Lord, also we just openly identify we have sinned. We've sinned against you. We've missed the mark in thought, word, and deed. By what we've done, by what we have left undone, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We've not loved our neighbor as ourself. And we are truly sorry and we humbly repent and ask for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, that you would cleanse us and wash us, that we would delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory and to the honor of your name. Now I'm going to invite you, if you would, to stand with me. And we're just going to read through this confession and then I'm going to invite you to come to the table as you feel led. If you came prepared to give, Thank you. Uh, We're grateful for that. And then I'm going to close us in that closing prayer out of the common book of prayer. But would you stand and let's read this together. I love the way that Eugene Peterson 
translated this passage because I believe it communicates this same message we've looked at this morning. The God who made the world and everything in it, this master of sky and land, doesn't live in custom-made shrines or need the human race to run errands for him as if he couldn't take care of himself. He makes the creatures. The creatures don't make him. Starting from scratch, he made the entire human race and made the earth hospitable with plenty of time and space so we could seek after God and not just grope around in the dark, but actually find him. He doesn't play hide and seek with us. He's not remote. He's near. We live and move in him can't get away from him. One of your poets said it well, we're the God created. Well, if God, we are the God created, it doesn't make a lot of sense to think we could hire a sculptor to chisel a God out of stone for us, does it? God overlooks it as long as you don't know any better, but that time is past. The unknown is now known. And he's calling for a radical life change. He has set the day when the entire human race will be judged and everything set right. And he has already appointed the judge, confirming him before everyone by raising him from the dead.